Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom, and you're listening to True Crime Exposed. I'm really excited about this episode because it is releasing on Wednesday, July 27th, which is our one-year potiversary. So it just so happens that the date landed on a Wednesday, which is the same day we release episodes. It couldn't have worked out better for our one-year anniversary of having True Crime Exposed launched. And I just want to say thank you to everybody for supporting the show. It literally means the world to me. So I have a little anniversary gift for you and for us. It's something that could benefit both of us. If you guys haven't heard of Patreon, this is basically a fan club type thing where you can join as a member monthly. It's super cheap, super affordable. You do not have to do it. If you don't want to do it, that's totally fine. Your listens are plenty. I appreciate them. They are a huge support. But if you do want to join the Patreon, there will be different tiers and I'll have a link in our show notes. That's where this episode description is. So just click on this episode and you'll find that link. Then you'll be redirected to our Patreon when you click on the link and you can go through the tiers and what they offer. Different tiers will include different things, but a basic layout for fan club members will be things like a bonus case case each month. And this is likely to be multiple episodes long because you guys know me and I can never stop myself from over-researching and over-sharing about these cases. So there will be mini-sodes each month, ad-free episodes, early access to part two episodes, outtake clips, because believe it or not, me and my mom mess up all the time on this podcast, and sometimes it's funny, but I usually edit it out. There will also, being a member will also enter you into a monthly drawing for true crime merch. Things like shirts, sweatshirts, sweats, socks, hats, mugs, and it won't only be things that say true crime exposed on them. It's going to be all sorts of different true crime merch that you're going to be able to relate to. You'll also get things like special priority on listener suggestion episodes. I have the longest list of listener suggestions So again, priority on that and all sorts of things. So again, you can click the link and find out about all of the tiers. Anyway, I just thought this would be super fun to do and announce on our one year anniversary. And if you want to join, amazing, I'll happily take it. But if you don't want to or you're not able to, that's totally fine. You listening to our regular content, wherever you're listening right now, is seriously a huge support. So just keep on doing that and sharing our episodes and telling your friends. That is plenty. Now I want to let you know if you do join our Patreon, your support will go directly into helping produce this podcast. And then as our show grows, the Patreon will be dedicated to helping create new content, more true crime series that I dream of telling, as well as going towards a passion project I'm working on now for kids in the foster care system that I'm hoping to get going in December of this year. And that leads us directly into our case today. And on the note of having early access to two-part episodes, this 
directly ties into our case today. So this is a two-part episode. So those that know me know I have a special place in my heart for children in the system. Kids should never be in these situations, but far too often they are. My dream is to foster kids one day. I'm not really in a place to do so right at the moment, but this is a huge dream of mine. It always has been. I feel like it is something I am meant to do because I care about the kids here so much. So I know a lot of times in cases that involve young people and kids, it's it's really hard for you guys to listen to. So trigger warning, we are talking about teenagers in our case today. And I understand if that's too hard to listen to, you guys can always skip episodes if they're just too much. And I know the kid ones are often too much, but I want to reiterate why I do talk about these things. And it's because kids in the system don't have a voice of their own. They are very often not heard or listened to. And only we as the adults can stand up and advocate for them. We can be their voice. And that's exactly what I'm doing here. Because while it is hard to talk about and it is hard to listen to, it also can't be pushed to the side. If we don't talk about it, people start forgetting that these things are really going on in the world. So I feel like it's my duty to stand up and tell these children stories in an effort to help create change, to help create awareness that the system really is broken. It needs reform. And these kids need to be heard. They need to be seen. So with that, are you ready for today's case? It's November 18th, 2017, when a 911 call comes into dispatch. It's a man named Steven Furkovich, and he's calling on behalf of some children he's concerned about. You see, his daughter, 58-year-old Dana DeKalb, is neighbors with Jennifer and Sarah Hart. The Harts are a lesbian couple who had adopted six children, and Steven thinks there's something dangerous going on in that home. Dana had told her dad a harrowing story about one of their little girls showing up to her home in the middle of the night. And since that day, he couldn't get 15-year-old Hannah Hart off of his mind. This is one of the adopted daughters of Jennifer and Sarah Hart. His voice comes through the phone saying, quote, Yeah, there's some kids that I feel is being highly abused in Woodland, Washington. I'm going to give you the address of my daughter's house because that's my daughter's home. The other night, a little girl jumped off the second story roof and ran to my daughter at like 2 in the morning, begging my daughter to help her. She was crying, and when they came back for her, she was begging my daughter not to let them know she was there. But my son-in-law eventually lets them know she was there. And then she had all four kids come back later and say everything was okay. And they were just standing there, at attention. Since she told me about it, I just can't live with it. I'm very concerned about these kids. I just can't let this go any longer. Those kids, I think they're in very serious danger. Okay, tell me the mom's names again. So the moms are Jennifer Hart and Sarah Hart. Okay. Yeah. There are a lot of names there in that little <laughs> that little bit. There were a lot of names. So Dana DeKalb is neighbors with Jennifer and Sarah Hart. And then Stephen Furkovich is Dana's dad. And he is calling on behalf of one of Jennifer and Sarah's adopted daughters. And that is Hannah Hart. Got it. 
Just days before Stephen's call, Dana and her husband Bruce had heard a banging at their front door around 3 a.m. And within moments of the door being opened, a teenager barges into the home. She's covered in grass, dirt, and weeds. It looks like she had just ran through the wooded area between the homes. Based on a map view of the Hart home and the DeKalb home, it looks like the homes share some part of a driveway that separates into each family's home. And it looks like, you know, it then goes into their own personal driveways. And between the homes are just a bit of trees and weeds. The homes are in Woodland, Washington, where the Harts had moved next door to the DeKalbs on May 17th, 2017. So did the daughter not want to be the one to call? I just... Because they were her neighbors? Yeah, so she doesn't actually really know her neighbors very well, but she doesn't call, I think, because she's very confused about the situation. And we'll kind of see, like, she's concerned, but she doesn't know what to do. So you're about to get into the rest of the story? Definitely. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, why why was he concerned enough to call, but she wasn't? Yeah. And you'll see, like, through what happens that she's just kind of really thrown off and she's given reasons to, like, what do I do here? Is this something? Is it nothing? But he does say in his 911 phone call that there's four kids. There's really six kids total. That's just a mistake on his end because he doesn't know the family or anything. So I just wanted to point that out. Okay. So when Hannah comes through their front door, it's only Bruce to call downstairs. He had come down to answer the door. And immediately he starts yelling upstairs to his wife because he has no clue what to do in this moment. So this is at three in the morning. Yeah. I would have been like, we would have been dead asleep. And I think they were. They were woken up by the banging on their door in the middle of the night. Oh, so the, so Bruce went down and answered and then called for his wife. Yeah, so he goes down, he answers, and when he seen, sees Hannah, he starts yelling up to Dana, like, come help me. I'm not sure what's going on here. Okay. Dana rushes downstairs, shocked to see one of the neighbor's kids inside her home in the middle of the night. And Hannah starts pleading with them. Save me. I need help. She's crying. Dana's nurturing instincts kick in and she com comforts Hannah, telling her that she's safe. They can help her. What's going on? And once Hannah calms down a bit, she's able to tell Dana and Bruce that her parents are abusing her and her siblings. She screams that both of her moms are racist. For some context here, Jennifer and Sarah Hart are white women, and all six of their adopted children are black. Dana's chest gets tight. This was so sad for her to hear about, and like what a hard position to be put in. Because at this moment, they can see flashlights lighting up the driveway and the yard around the Hart's home. Jennifer and Sarah had woken up their five other children, and the family was outside searching for the runaway girl. They're yelling out for Hannah, and she starts crying inside the DeKalb's home, asking them not to let her family know she's inside. But what do they do here? This girl is 15 years old. Her legal guardians are outside looking for her. The DeKalb's want to help her, and at the same time, they don't want to face consequences for harboring someone else's child when they know full well her parents are searching for her. So reluctantly, Bruce goes outside and calls out to Jen and Sarah, telling them that Hannah was safe. She's over here at our house. I mean, and oh, I don't want to make this sound bad, but she is a teenager. Yeah. So lots of 
you know, teens get in kind of fights with their parents and I'm going to run away. But if she's clearly saying she's abused, that, then that's a, that'd be tough. Yeah. And that is the hard thing for them right now is that they they don't know what to do in this situation. They don't know what's the truth here. They're just, you know, they're really kind of witnessing this thing that's going on that they got pulled into and they're trying to navigate what but to there's do. There's plenty of teens that have lied before. Totally. About what, you know, their parents may have done. <laughs> okay, so when I was little, this is interesting, I was actually like a preteen. But do you ever remember the story um, that Coach tells, which Coach is my dad, so it's Kayla's grandpa. Grandpa. He was too young to be a grandpa, so they he had them call him Coach. Couldn't handle the grandpa. Term. But he, so him and my mom got divorced, and so I, ha- like, I had to go talk to a therapist. Mm-hmm. And they asked me if he ever abused me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think I was really mad at him, and I said, like, he slapped me one time because me and my brother were fighting... <laughs> <laughs> fighting over the milk carton like who could take it in we, we used to get it delivered you're like us. you know what like, yes um you know like winter dairy or reeds farm whatever yeah and so we ran out there to bring it in and we were fighting over it and we broke the the glass milk and it spilled all over the porch so <laughs> he came out and like smacked us both oh. um like like on the cheek he was mad and so i told my counselor <laughs> about that <laughs> Oh my gosh. And she told him that um, she was going to call like the authorities because he abused me and he like always brings that up and never lets me live. Like down. remember when you tried <laughs> to get yourself taken away from me uh, and he like wasn't abusive. Yes. Yes I do. That's hilarious. <laughs> uh, but I totally yeah I I totally believe some teenagers do do things like that. Yeah. Sometimes someone is mad over getting their phone taken or you know, whatnot, and they might just say something dumb to make their parents look bad, not understanding the full consequences. Now, the neighbors, they don't know each other super well, regardless of their close proximity. Dana had always found it strange how little she actually spoke to them. She told the producers of A Threat of Deceit, The Hart Family Tragedy in 2020 that they had families with children move in next door before this, The homes were so close that they would always hear the neighbor kids outside playing, but not since 2017 when the hearts came to town. Quote, we've had kids move in next door before. You hear them, you see them, they speak to you. So this was completely abnormal to have six kids that we never saw or heard or that we spoke to. So when Jen and Sarah and all five other children come crowding into Dana's home in the middle of the night, she's a little nervous. She hadn't ever really talked with these people, and now what a strange situation to be in. The moms find Hannah inside Dana's bedroom, huddled down, hiding between a bed and a dresser. Both Jen and Sarah rush towards Hannah, but when Dana sees her shaking with fear, she feels the innate need to protect the teen. She calls out to Jen and Sarah like, hey, you need to give Hannah some space because you're freaking me out. And the tensions could be felt in the room at that point. Jen grabs Sarah's arm saying to her, look, you take the other kids home and I'll handle this situation. So once most of the family is gone, Jen goes up to Hannah. She props herself next to her and tells her that it's time she apologizes to these neighbors. 
you need to explain about how you're sad and how you're stressed because it's been such a hard week. Yes, ma'am, Hannah says. Dana explains that each time Jen spoke to her, Hannah became robotic, only replying with that same phrase. Yes, ma'am. So off Hannah goes, back home next door. Dana and Bruce are left trying to dissect what just happened. They're exhausted after the whole fiasco, so they head back to sleep, but they're woken up by a ring at the doorbell around 6.30 a.m. that next morning. Well, that same morning because everyone was over at 3 a.m., so a few hours later, they're woken up. And at the door, Dana finds a letter written to her from Hannah. Quote, Dear Dana and Bruce, I stopped this morning because I feel awful about disturbing your peace and worrying you in the middle of the night. I was very frustrated with my brother and didn't handle things very maturely. I'm sorry for telling lies to get attention. I'm working on being more honest and finding better ways to communicate my frustrations. I've been pretty sad about two of our cats dying recently, so I was just very sad and frustrated last night. Thank you for being kind. Hannah. And that letter doesn't sit right with the Tacobs, but they're still not quite sure of what to make of all of this. Right. Because it sounds kind of forced. Oh, for sure. It sounds way forced. Like, like, like oh, I'm sorry. I was lying to get attention. Like what teen would do yeah, that, you they, know? They just, they don't really usually say things like that. I mean, no one really says something like that. Now, months after Hannah's appearance on their front doorstep, it's March of 2018 when Bruce sees another one of the Hart children outside around 9.15 p.m. while he's outside working on his truck. It's 15-year-old Devonte Hart, and he's running down the driveway. Bruce is like, hey, what are you up to? Obviously, after that whole Hannah situation, the DeKalbs are on edge and curious about, you know, the kids when they see them. So, of course, he calls out just to see, you know, how are you? What are you doing? Well, Devante takes this call out as an invitation to head over to the DeKalb's house. So he turns around and starts running towards their home instead of down the driveway. And when he arrives, he asks for tortillas. Would they mind sharing some food with him? Dana is willing to help out her neighbors. I mean, they do have six children. So he was hungry. Yeah, he was hungry. And Dana's mm-hmm. like, well, they have six kids. They're on one income, Sarah works, Jen stays at home with the kids. So yeah, she's like, okay, I'll do this neighborly thing and help out. But then things get a little weird when Devante asks the DeHalbs not to let his parents know that he asked for this food. And then the next morning, he's back at the DeKalb's door at 9.30 a.m. And he's like, hey, sorry to be trouble, but can I bother you for some bread? Well, Dana, she doesn't have any bread, but she did have more tortillas, so she lets Devante know that, and he says that's all right. Dana goes into her home, and she grabs him one of the huge Costco packs she has, since he's here the next morning needing more. Devante thanks her, but again, asks for them not to let either of his moms know that he's borrowing food. Devante coming to the house became a habit for the next week or two. Each day, he would stop by at least once and up to three times every day. Sometimes he would even come over as late as 11 p.m. And through all of this, Dana earns Devante's trust. Now, how old is Devante? He's 15 years old. Yeah, that's pretty weird. 
that he's asking them for food. Definitely. And like I said, at first, she's just kind of like, yep, I'll help out my neighbors. They have a bunch of kids. They're on one income. That could be tough. But, you know, with him asking for them not to tell, that gets super weird. So we know Devante is trusting Dana now, and she eventually asks him what's going on because it's starting to scare her. Not scare her for herself, of course, but she's scared for the kids. Why do they need all of this food? Because as those weeks had passed, Devante started asking for more items that are staples, like peanut butter. And just before Dana had asked what's going on, Devante had asked for non-perishable items, things that did not have to be refrigerated. So in response to Dana's question, Devante tells her that all of them are teenagers now, so sometimes they just do naughty things. And he shrugs his shoulders and lets out a little laugh before muttering, mm, so we get punished. And he says that, at first, his mom would just take a meal from them, but now it's stretching out and they're having food taken away from them for days at a time. Dana is mortified, so she asks him which mom it is because he has two moms. And he's like, no, like we have our mom who's Jen, we call her mom, and then Sarah, we call her by name. Huh. Now, maybe this is because Sarah works and Jen's the stay-at-home mom and it would be confusing to be like mom and mom. That's true. I don't know. So they call Jen mom and they call Sarah, Sarah. So Dana tells Devante that this isn't normal, that restricting food is abusive behavior. She can see the sadness in his eyes and it's clear that he knows this. Devante tells Dana that Sarah used to not tolerate the abuse, but as the years have gone on, she's become more complicit. During one of Devante's morning visits to the DeKalb's home, he's asking for food and begging Dana to go to the store immediately. By this point, Dana can't let this go on any longer, so she warns Devante that she's going to be calling CPS. She thinks that him and his siblings need help. She's super concerned because children should be able to eat food regularly. And Dana makes the call. We know her father had already called months earlier to 911 to report that incident with Hannah. And at this point, CPS is starting to take the concern more seriously after a second call and more information. Dana has no idea about the history of this family, about their many moves, or the many accusations of abuse that led them to all those moves, ultimately leading them here to Washington. So when Jennifer and Sarah Hart encounter CPS yet again, no one knows how badly they don't want to be exposed to the world and what that desperation would lead to. Just before the shocking tragedy, Devante came to the DeKalb's home on a Thursday night. And he tells them that everything Hannah had said months earlier when she arrived at their home in the middle of the night was in fact true. In that documentary I mentioned earlier, Dana is crying on camera during the point she's explaining that Thursday night, telling us that it broke her heart because Hannah had told her some horrible things about physical abuse with a belt and emotional abuse by racist comments. And what's crazy about all of these abuse allegations is that to the friends of the Hart family, the women didn't seem like monsters at all. To them, these were loving mothers who sacrificed to help these kids' lives. Moms who would never intentionally harm their children, but unfortunately, we don't always know what goes on behind closed doors. 
And even when we think we know someone, the truth is we might not. And they had a slight problem during that documentary, The Trail of Deceit. Not a problem with how it was made, but through that documentary, the producers interview a lot of Sarah and Jen's friends. And they're kind of who I have a problem with. Well, some of their comments. Still to this day, after knowing what you're going to find out through this episode, those friends are still defending Sarah and Jen in 2020 when the documentary is made. And I'm going to reiterate a lot of those things throughout this episode just to explain who these people were to their friends. And while I can understand that their situation was not always easy being a same-sex couple, once a child is harmed purposefully, I just don't have a lot of grace for those who hurt them. So we'll kind of get into all of that and the background of what I'm talking about. I mean, a lot of people go on to blame Dana and they tell her that, you know, she's the racist one and she's like the bad person. And again, I'm going to get into a lot of these things and, you know, they're saying she's the nosy neighbor and oh. it's it's just not fair. Well, I just don't. I mean, they should be grateful, those kids, if they were starving. Yeah, exactly. She didn't even call the cops the first time with the first incident. It's not like she judged the situation from afar or based on one thing. She really kind of let it play out for a few months and was getting very concerned. And yeah, she's the one feeding them. Like, you should be grateful for that. So let's jump back in time to see how Sarah and Jen came together and ultimately end up living in Washington next to Dana and Bruce DeKalb. Jennifer Jean Hart is born on June 4, 1979, and she grows up in Heron, South Dakota. She's the oldest child and has three siblings, and during her teen years, she attends Huron High School. She was ultimately baptized in the Lutheran Church, although that's not the way she was raised. And after graduating high school, Jen goes off to Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota. This is where she meets Sarah Margaret Hart, who was born on April 8, 1979. Sarah is the oldest of the three children that her parents had, and she's from Big Stone City, reported in many sources, which is in South Dakota, although other sources say she's from Ortonville, Minnesota. And the towns are right next to each other, you know, like right next to each other, but just different states, like right across the border. But for some reason, I sort of lean towards her growing up in Minnesota because she did attend high school there in Minnesota. And then when she graduates, she goes to the University of Minnesota. But she only stays there for about one semester before transferring to NSU, Northern State University, where Jennifer Hart is in college and the women meet. They connect easily and they're in a lot of the same classes because they're both majoring in elementary education. With that, Sarah is specializing in special ed. And their relationship blooms here. They fall in love, although at this point they're keeping it pretty quiet and to themselves. By 2002, Sarah graduates with her degree, but Jennifer isn't quite done. However, she leaves the university without graduating and her and Sarah start this life together. By 2004, the women are approved to become foster parents, and then by 2005, after they had been dating for a few years, they ask the local court to have Sarah's last name changed so that it can match her partner's. Because at this time, same-sex marriage is not legal in every state in the United States. Which is actually super sad, because this wasn't long ago. I mean, I was 10 years old at that time. It's just crazy to think how different things were like so recently. Yeah. So after changing her last name to match Jen's, 
They wait for about four years and they ultimately get legally married in Connecticut in 2009. Now, a lot of stuff happens before their official marriage in 2009. Through those early years of their relationship, they're still staying pretty quiet and they don't go public with their same-sex relationship until they move to Alexandria, Minnesota in 2004. Although they felt that they had lost friends when they came out with this information, they were able to be more of themselves there in Alexandria. When they first move there, both of them get a job at a department store called Herbiger's Store, and eventually Sarah becomes a manager of that store. Jen doesn't work there as long as Sarah does, and she just works odd jobs for the next couple of years. I'm not sure why Sarah decided not to pursue a career with her degree in school or in education, but I'm sure her degree helped her get a manager position, whatnot. Maybe this was just better for her, obviously. This is what she wanted to do at this time. Now, like I said, Jen just works these odd jobs for a couple years, but by 2006, she decides she wants to be a stay-at-home mom because they're going to start fostering. It's during their time in Minnesota that the couple decides to do this. We know they ultimately end up with their six kids, but before this, they had fostered another child. For a while, they had a 15-year-old girl placed with them from the foster care system. She's still there in their home when they find out that they're going to have three siblings placed with them. So one week before these three kids are set to come to their home, Jen and Sarah drop the 15-year-old girl off at her therapist appointment. They wave goodbye to her and she walks inside the home. When she sits down on the couch and looks over to her therapist, she's concerned with the look on his face. He goes on to tell her that the hearts would not be coming back for her. She's going back into the system. And this was super sad to me. Like, look, I get it. Oftentimes foster care placement is temporary. People are not always going to be able to take on the responsibility long term. I think what's really messed up about this is that the hearts couldn't just have a sit down conversation and let her know that they're going to have to move her from her placement. They need to adopt these other kids. It feels more traumatizing to me that she would just be dropped off somewhere and just kind of ripped out of what she had probably gotten comfortable with for the last little while. Well, yeah, it's like be adult enough to tell her. Yeah, like just sit down, just say it, give her a chance to say goodbye, get her a, give her a chance to pack up her own things. It's just like, wow, it's kind of a little cold. Well, that is devastating. You'd have questions like, why, what did I do? Yeah. So it's March 4th, 2006, when Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus are adopted by Jennifer and Sarah. The three kids are siblings from Colorado County, Texas. Marcus is the oldest of these three, and he was born on July 1st, 1998. Hannah is the middle child, born on February 25th, 2002, and Abigail, the youngest, born on December 26th, 2003. So by the time they're placed into the Hart home, Marcus is seven years old, almost eight. Hannah had just turned four years old and Abigail is two years old. She will be three at the end of that year. Six months after their placement, Jen and Sarah officially adopt all three kids. The biological mom of these kids is Tammy Shorick. And unfortunately, the story of how she loses her kids is kind of sad. Tammy had become homeless because she was dating a much older man when she was only 17 years old. Not even sure I can call that dating. She was kind of groomed by this older guy. She didn't always get along with her grandparents at the time who she lived with and she rebelled a bit. 
She had actually been put into the system herself after her own mom lost custody of her. Tammy most, mostly lived with her dad's parents and sometimes saw her dad who she was allowed to see and he was remarried, he had two more kids, but I guess he decided not to take on a full responsibility of Tammy. So she's 17 and this older guy she's seeing is like, let's run off together. You don't need to stay at your grandparents anymore. I can take care of you. So Tammy agrees. She hops on a Greyhound bus in Corpus Christi, Texas and heads to Houston. Well, that boyfriend, he never shows up. So now Tammy is stuck there and you, you know, she calls her grandparents and she's like, grandpa, I'm stuck. I came out here like the guy didn't meet me, but he just says, I'm sorry. You ran away. You made your bed. You have to lie in it. From here, Tammy becomes homeless. And by the time she's 18, she gives birth to Marcus. She admits that during this time, she was young and would often leave Marcus with her grandparents for long periods of time. But by the time she has Hannah three and a half years later, she's a little more grown up. She's more mature. Tammy hadn't gotten into drugs or any behavior that was extremely risky. She was just being young and irresponsible. It's 2003 when Tammy is living with Marcus and Hannah. They're in Corpus Christi, Texas, and she's pregnant with her youngest, Abigail. The family goes to a birthday party, and while there, Hannah, who is one and a half years old at this time, gets covered in these ant bites. The bites weren't treated, and one of them gets infected. This infection turns into a staph infection that was very hard to treat. So Tammy says, quote, they had to remove a chunk size of a quarter and that deep of flesh around there and gave her IV antibiotics. So the doctor informed CPS and a case is opened of potential medical neglect, which doctors are mandated reporters, right? Yes, they are. Yeah, that's what I thought. And is this often done? Like, I was kind of wondering, is it full on neglect or can someone be uneducated? Like, of course, you need to take your kids to the doctors and you usually know, but could... I could see that some people might not realize an ant bite could get infected and this infection could turn into a staph infection. Like, is it an educational thing? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't really know because I don't have experience in that. Yeah. So it's not unusual that this doctor does this when he has a concern. Mm -hmm. When she starts being investigated by CPS, Tammy sort of panics. It's obviously a scary situation, so she decides she's going to give Abigail up for adoption once she's born. Maybe this will be the best thing for her. Tammy's thinking to herself, she can't take care of her own kids. Other people are telling her that. Now CPS is involved. It, it's, it's just going to be a lot better. But then her grandparents move to Columbus and Tammy goes with them. Through that move, things seem to smooth out. She gets really comfortable there and she decides, you know what? No, I do not want to give Abigail up for adoption. So Abigail is born just after Christmas, like I said, on December 26th. And Tammy relishes in growing up trying to be the mother her kids deserve. But in February of 2004, Hannah gets really sick. It's just weeks before Hannah's second birthday when she's diagnosed with an upper respiratory infection that turned into pneumonia. Tammy says that she takes Hannah to the doctor on February 9th and that the doctor changes Hannah's asthma meds before sending them home. Things don't get better and Tammy ultimately calls the doctor. 
According to a police report that was filed the following month after this event, it stated that Tammy does not show up for a planned doctor's appointment the following day. And then after that phone call, she waits too long to take Hannah to the hospital as she was instructed to do so by a doctor. So when Tammy does take Hannah to a doctor, finally, she's getting a ride from a CPS worker, Sharon Kirby. Tammy says she didn't take Hannah to the doctor earlier because she didn't have anyone else to watch her kids while she took Hannah to the hospital. Quote, Sharon was standing there in the living room. She reassured me she was not taking the kids and that CPS was there to help in other ways. So while Hannah is being treated, a nurse comes in asking to speak with Sharon. And Sharon leaves the room. Tammy's left with a bit of anxiety. And by the time Sherry returns, she has the paperwork in her hand, telling Tammy that CPS will now be taking her children. Tammy has told all of this information to The Appeal, which you can find at theappeal.org. And they also asked Sharon for an interview, but she declined to say to say anything because she was too fearful to interview because she might be sued by CPS. And she no longer works for them. All she said was, quote, I did everything I could for those kids. I loved them. And I'm sure that's true. The hard thing in cases like this where we're talking about the system and we say things like the system's broken or even when we're talking about a police force and they don't do the right thing and we're talking about it and criticizing it, you know, being the not professionals that we are, like, you know, we don't work in those fields, so we really don't know. Just giving our opinion on it. I do also want to say that we know the people working for these organizations, most of them are there to do the good work. And they're in these positions because they care about the community. People working in the foster system usually chose that career because they genuinely want to help these kids. And while there can be bad eggs in every aspect of life, every organization, every group, I know that's not the norm and the problems usually lie within the system. They are systemic problems and it's the system as a whole that needs changed. Right. There's yeah. not enough workers. They're like completely overwhelmed. To conquer all the problems that are out there. And so. Yeah. It ends up just. It ends up. Being really hard to get the right things done bad. when they're so yeah. overworked. Yeah, the the system's overwhelmed. The CPS, at least in our state, is super overwhelmed. I know. It's always like, why don't they just take that baby? Why don't they just take those yeah. kids away? Well, who are they going to give them to? There's not enough foster. It's sad we have enough kids in the foster care system that it even is that overwhelmed. That there's not enough people to properly care for these kids. Yeah, it's really sad. Tammy feels defeated at this point, so she ultimately decides to voluntarily sign her rights away. She finds out that her three kids were going to be adopted to a couple there in Missouri City. It's a suburb, suburb of Houston, so they're going to be close by. And the couple her kids are going to are a black couple. And she thinks this is going to be a great environment for her biracial children because this couple also has three children of their own. Tammy was devastated by this decision, but thought her kids would be in a better situation. Quote, I had talked to the foster mom and had everything mapped out in my head, how it was going to be, and it didn't happen that way. Later on, Tammy finds out that the adoption to the couple in Missouri City falls through. This is when Tammy finds out that all three of her kids were adopted out of state. 
It's just a sad story to me because Tammy was a young mom. She didn't have the resources to take care of her children and because she wasn't on drugs, I almost wish she was given more of a chance, maybe given the resources. But I can't say what would have been best because I'm not a professional. I'm always on the side of the children. So honestly, I want what's best for the kids in all of these situations. However, we don't all predict the future, so we can't always know. After signing her rights away, Colorado uh, Colorado County had charged Tammy with child endangerment regarding Hannah's respiratory infection, and she was originally given three years of probation, but she can't pay the monthly $225 fee. So between that and missing community service and failing to notify the court of a change in her address, she's given 30 days in jail in April of 2005. Now, once she's let out, she still can't pay all of her fines, which totaled over $1,000. So on December 19th, 2006, she's sentenced to another six months in jail. Now, before the sentence and her getting this time and before her kids are completely taken from her, but after signing her rights away, she does have one last day with them to say goodbye. This happens in 2004, and she takes her kids to Herman Park there in Houston. They go to the zoo and they have a picnic. They just enjoy one last day together. Quote, I talked with them. Hannah didn't understand, and of course, Abigail didn't. She wasn't even walking yet. I talked with Marcus and told him that I wouldn't be seeing him anymore, and that I loved him, and one day I would be seeing him again. And that just is so sad to me. When they're adopted to the hearts, Marcus is like seven years old. And this is a couple years before they're adopted out when, you know, before they're officially adopted, that Marcus is sitting there with his mom having this conversation. So he's like five or six or somewhere around that age. And I just think of my daughter, Charlie, and it is sad when a kid is just ripped out of their life. I mean, whether they need to be or not, this moment of losing everything they know, losing the parent they love, whether that parent's good or not, it's traumatizing for the kid. Oh, yeah. It would affect them. Yeah. Probably the rest of their lives. Just feeling that abandonment and not really understanding why they had to be gone from their parent. Yeah. So two years after Jen and Sarah adopt Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus, they decide to adopt three more kids, Sierra, Devante, and Jeremiah in 2008. These were three siblings who were coming from Houston, Texas. Sherry Hurd is the biological mom of Devante, Jeremiah, and Sierra. And Shauna Jones is a family law attorney who worked closely with this case. At the time that Sherry loses custody of her children, she's married to Nathaniel Davis, and this is the kid's stepdad. Shauna, the attorney, believes that Nathaniel really did love these kids, but CPS decides he is not eligible to take over custody when Sherry loses it. Sherry has an addiction to drugs, and unfortunately, that addiction was not something she could get past in order to care for her children. Sherry also had an older son named Dante. So different than Devante. Wow, those are pretty right? similar. <laughs> yeah, very <laughs> similar. I was confused too, so I wanted to point that out. Devante is one of the three children adopted out to the Hart family. Dante is their older brother. 
Now, he's also taken from his parents at this time, but he doesn't get to stay with his siblings. He's more troubled. He's getting in fights and he's told that he just has to go a separate way. And when the hearts decide to adopt the three younger children, it is cited they didn't want to adopt Dante because of his behavioral issues. And that was really hard for him to come to grips with when he was a young child. He was always asking to see his brothers. But I'm sure now in his adult years, he's grateful for that. It ended up being merciful that he wasn't adopted along with his siblings. And now he has a son of his own that he's focusing on raising. He says his drive to be a good father comes from this story and the tragedy that happened to his siblings. Nathaniel Davis, the children's stepdad, interviewed in that 2020 documentary that I've mentioned. He said, quote, they got mad because she wouldn't. They said complete the whole year in the program, the drug, the drug rehabilitation program. They took the kids from Sherry when Jeremiah was born. Don't let your kids get set up in the system because if you get in the system, you're lost. Those kids never had no business leaving out of Texas. They took my life away from me. So when Sherry loses custody and CPS doesn't want to give the kids to Nathaniel, they place them with Sherry's sister, their aunt Priscilla Celestine. She would be the caretaker for the time being, and she was fighting hard to adopt them. However, one day when she has to work, she doesn't have a babysitter for the kids. Oh, no. And she left them alone? No, actually, she doesn't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but close. Like, it's not much better because what happens is she knows she can't leave them alone, so she calls her sister. This is the kid's mom that, you know, the kids were just taken from. And Priscilla has Sherry come over to babysit her own kids, regardless of the fact that she's this caretaker under the pretense that she's not allowed to let the children's mom see them because, again, they're taken from her. So while Sherry is with her own kids at Priscilla's home, a caseworker stops by the house and sees what's going on. Immediately, the court system removes the kids from Priscilla's care. Oh, my gosh. Right. It's just like, ah. Uh. Lawyer Shauna Jones had become involved when Sherry and Nathaniel knew the kids were going to be taken. They were panicking and they hire her telling her that Sherry's sister Priscilla would be the perfect candidate to take over the care of their children. So Shauna tries to help Priscilla get back to being the caretaker for her niece and nephews. Shauna sends a letter to the court system, quote, We are simply asking that you really consider the emotional impact it would have on these children who were not being abused to be separated and shipped across the country. Miss Celestine would like for you to revisit her home. But all their requests are denied. And Shauna, who was interviewed in that same documentary, was devastated by the outcome. She talks about how she just wishes CPS would have given Priscilla a warning, maybe told her how severe and serious the consequences were for letting her sister see the kids who were taken from her. She believes Priscilla didn't understand the consequences of this. Priscilla and Sherry were never able to see the kids again. And that lawyer, Shauna, says she wishes she would have even have had one more chance to talk with them, just to tell them that they had an aunt who was fighting for them, someone who wanted them. Quote, once CPS takes possession and their position is that the rights are going to be terminated, that's exactly what's going to happen. The courts just honestly rubber stamp whatever CPS says. 
I mean, they just do. Yeah, it's it's a tough situation because, you know, if she left the kids and they were put in danger and they didn't do anything about it, they could get in trouble or they could get sued. Yeah, absolutely. It is a tough situation because when they catch Priscilla letting her sister Sherry see the kids that she's not supposed to be around right now due to CPS finding that she's dangerous for them. Well, you know, they don't, they're not going to trust Priscilla any further. They're not going to trust that she will actually keep them away from their mom. Court documents reveal the termination of rights, reading, quote, termination of respondent mother Sherry Renee Hurd's parental rights. The court finds by clear and convincing evidence that termination of the parent-child relationship between Sherry Renee Hurd and the children Dante Damon Davis, Devante Jeremy Davis, Jeremiah Isaiah Davis, and Sierra Rose Davis, the subject of this suit, is in the child's best interest. Now, there's a couple other court documents that terminate the father's rights. One reads termination of respondent father Clarence Celestine's parental rights and then goes on to read the same wording as in Sherry's, except this is only for Jeremiah Isaiah Davis and Sierra Rose Davis. And then there's another document reading termination of the alleged father Isaac Amos parental rights. This goes on to read very similar to the one in Sherry's case and the one in Clarence's case. However, this is alleged, an alleged father. So it reads, there is a termination of the parent-child relationship if any exists or could exist between the alleged father, Isaac Amos, and Devante Jeremy Davis. A child subject of this suit, it is in the best interest of the child. And I just found that extremely interesting that they could terminate someone's parental rights who's clearly not involved and is just the alleged father. Like, I mean, it writes they're terminating this relationship if any exists or even if it could exist one day. Yeah. Yeah. I just did not know that was a possibility. I'm sure they do it to avoid having some you know, random person come back and try to stop any adoption. Yeah. Very crazy. I wonder if they still do that nowadays. Yeah, I don't know. I feel it's like, like it's so easy to get like, you know, paternity tests and stuff. Yeah, I had just never heard of them doing that, like terminating an alleged father's rights, but very interesting. Does he even know he had a kid? I have no idea. So rights are terminated and this second trio of children are officially adopted by Sarah and Jen Hart in 2008. Devante was born on October 24, 2002, so he was about five years old at the time of this adoption, almost six years old. And Jeremiah was born February 24, 2004. He was four years old when he was adopted. And Sierra she was three years old when she was adopted, born on March 20th, 2005. When the adoption is finalized to make the Hart family a family of eight, Jen writes an email to her friend, quote, we finalized their adoption last month. Thank goodness. I've been a ball of anxiety just waiting for that day to come. Until a couple of months ago, a maternal aunt was still trying to get them back. Long story, happy ending or beginning moreover. 
Jen. So they're both like two sets of families. Yeah. So like three siblings and three siblings. Two little sets of kids. Yeah. Now, Jen did a lot of posting on Facebook once the kids are adopted. This is a huge thing in this case. It's, you know, we all kind of know that social media isn't always real. They portray the best sides of themselves. Even I do it. I'm not posting on there every time I cry or, you know, every time I'm hating myself. But, you know, it gives people this false sense that we never have anything bad going on in our lives. And trust me, we all do. So, Jen, it seems that she ends up getting extremely attached to presenting this false persona of her family on social media. She says, quote, I am a better human in every possible way for knowing these children. They've been my greatest teachers. Contrary to the common notion that we can't choose our family, we absolutely can. We choose by loving, and that's worth celebrating every damn day. This was posted on the ninth anniversary of one set of the, you know, three kids. And it seems very sweet. It seems very kind. It seems like she loves these kids. So what's the conclusion? Does We'll have to get into the story and you'll have to decide for yourself what you think about Jen and Sarah's relationship with their adopted children. People who knew the family say that these kids were so lovable, everyone gravitated towards them and they're explained as a little entourage. They went everywhere together. The family loves to travel cross-country to music festivals. They seem like more kind of hippie-style music festivals where they're small, they're intimate. There's, you know, like live music, a lot of like acoustic music. And they also loved hiking. They attend a lot of political rallies, including one for Bernie Sanders, where they all come sporting matching t-shirts and it has this outline of Bernie Sanders' face on them. Basically, they did a ton of activist work on social issues. Jen is huge into the social issues she cares about. They even have a picture of them setting up this little stand that is encouraging everyone to vote no against limiting the freedom to marry. Of course, like, you should fight for that. No one should be told who they can be with. They were having people pledge to vote no, and this would give them a chance to win a t-shirt, a lawn sign, or a bumper sticker. The kids were all there with a vote no stickers, like vote no stickers on the front of their shirt. They also did things like advocate for the rights of Black Lives Matter. In 2014, there's a riot in Ferguson, Missouri, and these start to spread throughout the nation. This was a result of the fatal shooting of Michael Brown by police officer Darren Wilson. All of that is far too much for us to get into today, but it's very sad. There's a lot of facts that go into the case. Just it's too much that I could talk about right here, right now. But this leads to these protests so that everyone can have this conversation about the relationship between the black community and the police. And so Jen and Sarah, they take their kids to one of these protests in Portland, Oregon. And during this, Devante goes up to a police officer and he is pictured hugging Officer Sergeant Brett Barnum of the Portland Police. 
and Devante is crying in this picture. The police officer is embracing him and the picture, picture spreads like wildfire throughout the internet. It goes viral. A news source says, what the world needs now just might be what's seen in this photo. This captured the moment of what the world was looking for. And it's deemed the hug felt around the world. So Jen, she of course posts it to her social media. This plays right into that perfection image she's trying to put out of her family. She quotes the picture with, The hug felt around the world indeed. Pass it on, love from our family to yours. And honestly, Jen on social media does sound great. She's, you know, doing good work. She's a good mom. It's just that based on the evidence we find out, it doesn't seem that this family was as picture perfect as portrayed. Jen, she really cared about the social issues and changing the world, but this was passing on to Devante, especially after that picture goes viral. So he does this free hugs thing where he raises money for things by giving out free hugs. Like, how cute is that? And if people wanted to donate, they could. On his 15th birthday, there's a sign and it reads, It's my 15th birthday and I'm raising money to honor the earth. He is wearing a free hug sign and holding two world globes with holes in the top for money donations. Just trying to make a, the world a better place. Jen posts more pictures of Devante on social media, saying that he trembled holding a free hug sign as he bravely stood alone in front of the police barricade. But then this stuff starts to affect her. She feels like she is being traumatized on social media due to this photo going viral and look I get it people on social media can be such a-holes like they are the literal worst people make the meanest comments they think they can say whatever they want they've got some balls behind a computer screen alone in their bedroom like they're so annoying we all hate a troll on the internet right so I totally get what she's saying and I'm sure with this this picture going so viral she did get a lot of comments and some of them might have been rude and that could be very hard to handle I mean it went so viral some of her friends in that documentary say that it was going viral around the same time that that picture of Kim Kardashian with like the champagne bottle on her butt and she's like well it's like kind of like a wine glass and she's holding the champagne bottle and the champagne's like going over her head into the glass that's on oh, her butt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it went viral around that time. And the friends of Jen say that it, it everyone was hashtagging like Kim Kardashian broke the internet. But then when this picture of Devante comes out, everyone's saying and Dante, Devante Hart saved the internet, mm -hmm. which is so cute. I actually like Kim Kardashian. I think she gets a lot of hate but I think I think she's pretty cool I love that she went to law school and that she's advocating for the rights of wrongfully convicted people so I like her yes anyway it's Octavio Choi who is a forensic psychiatrist that says Jen perceived herself to be the target of harassment which is what puts her into this really deep depression so she's starting to feel sad she's not feeling good and from Facebook 
it looks like she has this perfect family, right? And Octavio says that the word perfectly curated is what comes up a lot in these situations. And he says this is implying an active image of manipulation. And these women, they actually live the kind of lives where they could project this positive image of themselves because their friends are not right around them. Their friends are not coming to their home. Their friends are more internet friends or festival friends. A lot of times they were just with these friends when they would travel out to a music festival. Some of these friends were purely on the internet, friends that Jen would game with. So they're living lives that make it easy for them to hide within their house what was really going on. So let's kind of dive into all the abuse accusations that follow Jen and Sarah Hart as they move state to state. You see, originally they had lived in Minnesota, where I said they were in the beginning of this story. This is where they decide to foster. This is where they adopt all their kids. You know, they're sent to them from Texas, but the fa- the women are living in Minnesota when they do this. And then they live there until some stuff goes wrong. There's trouble in paradise for some years. And ultimately, by 2013, Jen and Sarah Hart move to Lynn, Oregon to escape these troubles. And these moves you'll see kind of play into helping them get away with the abuse allegations they receive. From Oregon is when they move to Washington in 2017. Each time, their move is fueled by a CPS investigation. So in 2008, a teacher sees bruises on Hannah's arm. And Hannah's like, yes, my mom Jen hit me with a belt. But when the hearts are questioned, they say Hannah just fell down the stairs. So no charges are filed. But months later, there's a big red flag when the family pulls all six children out of the school system for a full year. By 2010, they're back in school. But then Abigail says that she has owies on her back and her stomach. And she says that she feels threatened by the hearts because they had actually beaten her and put her head in cold water, holding it underneath because they believed she stole a penny. Oh my gosh. How are they allowed to adopt? Keep in mind, 2008 is when they adopt the second set of children. So they're receiving abuse allegations right away, very early on in adopting all of these kids. Abigail is telling a teacher that Jennifer hits her with a closed fist. And the teacher does see bruises that stretch from her sternum all the way down to her belly button. When these allegations are being investigated, Abigail tells police that after being beaten and having her head held under a cold bath, she is grounded. She had to stay in her bed and she's forced to go without eating. Her punishment is to miss lunch. This is so strange. Right. By 2011, several complaints had been filed. One included Hannah that same year telling a school nurse that she hadn't eaten all day. And Sarah claims that Hannah was just playing the food card and recommends she's just given water, which like not a good look when your child is claiming that you're not feeding them. And like also, what is playing the food card? What does that even mean? She's just saying she's hungry so she can get food. Yeah, but like if your kid's hungry, just feed them. Let them be fed. Right. Anyway, 
That same year in 2011, Sarah takes responsibility for the abuse. It's being investigated heavily at this point. So she pleads guilty to assault and is sentenced to community service for a year. I'm just confused because in the beginning of the story, they said it was Jen, Jennifer. It's all a little strange, right? That Sarah is the one who has been arrested and convicted on child abuse allegations because all we've really heard through this story is all the children saying that Jen is the abuser, like mostly. So it's mentioned throughout my research that maybe Sarah was also being abused by Jen and so she takes the fall just because she feels she has to do so. But then again, who knows? I mean, I believe the abuse was probably perpetrated by both women, both Jen and Sarah, because it was so many years that they had the kids and so many years that this was allowed to happen. They obviously both participated in this. In 2013, the Oregon system start an investigation of their own, and they do this through speaking and interviewing to people who knew the family, the family themselves, and just, you know, everyone that they could talk to. And it's two family friends that state the children were forced to raise their hands before speaking, and they were not allowed to wish each other happy birthday, and they were forced to not laugh at the dinner table. More reports state that the children are poorly fed and they look small. One family friend even says that Jennifer had ordered pizza for the children while she was over, but each was only allowed to have a very tiny slice. And when Jen discovers that the pizza was gone, she punishes the kids by not feeding them breakfast and forcing them to lie on their bed for five hours. Now, this is where there's like a lot of Turpin family like correlation because a lot of the same things are happening and you'll see like they're being isolated in their room for hours on end they're not being allowed to eat they have to raise their hands to talk it's just like a very controlling environment and then that escalates and the abuse gets you know very severe yeah other friends tell the investigators that the kids acted scared to death of jen and that they walked around like trained little robots this is in direct correlation to what Dana DeKalb, their neighbor, said about Hannah's response to Jen when she kept saying, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. Now, when the Oregon CPS investigators talk to the Hart children, they don't reveal any new incidents of abuse, nor are they mentioning anything that had happened previously in Minnesota. And when Jennifer is interviewed, she says that the family's problems were not a result of abuse. They were a result of others not being tolerant of two lesbian mothers with six African-American children. She says she's being reported to CPS all the time just because people don't like her. And while I believe that, that could be very true where someone is being persecuted for these things that other people might not deem tolerable or normal or whatever... I, I can see that happening in situations and that's extremely sad and that's not right. But unfortunately, because of the evidence that is recovered in, in, you know, a future investigation, I don't think this is the case. I think this is what Jennifer wants her friends to think, that they're having these problems because people are so, you know, hateful towards them. But I don't think end on end of people like 
friend after friend or teacher after teacher are all reporting abuse just because of hate. I think there is a deeper issue here and that's pretty much backed by evidence. However, the investigation in Oregon could not conclude whether the hearts were guilty of anything or whether they were a safety threat. So they, their safety analysis conclusion is that the kids are safe. And it's just kind of sad to me, like these people have had these abuse allegations follow them over and over and they're, they're just letting them go. They're letting them continue to have these kids and do these things. I mean, and this is years on end by this point. It's 2008 to 2013. Like, it's just shocking to me that someone who has adopted kids through the foster care system can then be reported for abuse so often and not have anything done to them. It seems to me that Jen and Sarah are actually let off a lot easier than Tammy Shurich, which was the mother of three of those children, the one who didn't take her daughter to the hospital in time on two separate occasions. So, you know, the system, we've said it's broken. Now, in that documentary, A Trail of Deceit, we are introduced to Jake Slates. He's a California Highway Patrol investigator and he's been working for them for the last 10 years. At the time of the tragedy that happens, he was working in investigative services and he testifies at this future inquest after the tragedy happens and he testifies to the call that was received from Abigail's elementary school to CPS. And this is when she reported that her head was held underwater, that she was beaten. She had those injuries from her sternum to her belly button. And he does say that the people in that case, the investigators, did observe extensive injuries to Abigail's body. There were also indications that the kids were not eating properly. He says that when Jen and Sarah had been questioned, Sarah just immediately takes the blame, although he does say Abigail had named Jen as her abuser. And he testifies to a pattern that was clearly seen in hindsight. Regardless of all the abuse allegations, the kids are never taken from Jennifer and Sarah Hart. And on March 26, 2018, the news is released stating that authorities say Jennifer and Sarah Hart, along with their six children, died when their car plunges off a cliff and into the water. This was a murder-suicide. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's absolutely devastating. And this is where we are going to end part one. If you want to be a part of our fan club and join the Patreon, you can go over there right now and listen to part two now. Otherwise, it will be out next week for everyone else. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I research, write, edit, all of the fun things for this podcast. Alicia Jenkins is the co-host. Charlie Waters is the palate cleanser giver. Make sure you follow our social media on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and more. And make sure to visit our website at www.truecrimeexposedpodcast.com. Hi, I'm Charlie Waters. And today we are going to be talking about how we talk. 
because we're talking here on our podcast, and I never knew how we could um, say words and stuff. You have vocal cords in your throat. And when you talk, they swing inward, and the muscles contract it. That can cause the cords to become stretched. And then the air coming through your lungs and out of your mouth passes over the stretched cords, and they vibrate. This produces, produces sound waves, and that's how we talk. Bye. Have a great day. If you go to Prevent Child Abuse Washington, you're going to find an awesome organization that you can donate to, that you can connect with community, that you can help get involved with. Their phone number is 360-688-6367 and their goal is to protect children and strengthen families so that they can flourish. I highly encourage you to visit that website I gave you, find out about their advocacy efforts, learn into how they're they're building prevention pathways for families for at, at risk for ch- that are at risk for child we- welfare involvement, and there you can find a donate button, a learn more button, and just explore this organization for yourself.